It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, June 3rd. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we examine local solutions to the national epidemic of gun violence. Then, how the Gulf Coast can protect itself against sea level rise. And another hot and humid Mississippi summer is paradise for household mold. Yuck. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. President Joe Biden is calling for a ban on assault weapons following a wave of mass shootings, including one that left 19 children and two teachers dead in Uvalde, Texas, last week. Biden addressed the nation last night, reflecting on recent visits to communities deeply impacted by gun violence. They had one message for all of us. Do something. Just do something. For God's sake, do something. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time that can't be true. This time we must actually do something. The issue we face is one of conscience and common sense. Yesterday, the House Judiciary Committee marked up the Protecting Our Kids Act, a wide-ranging package of legislation billed as common-sense gun control. Mary Helen Abel is a volunteer with Moms Demand Action in Mississippi. She says the national efforts reflect local attitudes towards gun violence solutions. Here are a lot of our focus, um, a lot of our, our energy and our resources um, we push toward groups who've been doing this work in 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 Mississippi for a long time. Um, there are people who have been on the ground um, in communities that are the most affected by gun violence for a long time. Um, and I happen to be a part of an or- organization that can provide some resources and elevate those voices. Statewide, uh, we have a campaign called Be Smart, and it is... Uh, to educate adults and to remind adults that there are no accidental shootings, that that there are unintended shootings by by children, there are unintended shootings by adults. But it is it is our responsibility as adults 
to make sure that we secure our our guns um, and our ammunition in a way that um, that keeps our kids safe. You mentioned the legislature. Have you given up? Uh, Mississippi is conservative, Republican state with open carry. So, no, we will never give up on Mississippi. We will never give up on the people who make our laws. Um, most Mississippians. Uh, agree that there should be some common sense gun legislation reform, you know, and and there are certainly um, lots of sticking points and there are lots of lots of places that we can get caught up. Um, But there are some pretty broad strokes that that could be taken and that we will continue to push for. Um, You mentioned open carry and and, you know, it, in Mississippi, we have we we call it permitless carry because you can have a gun you can have a gun anywhere pretty much um, without without having um, to have any kind of training or or permit. Um, and we would like to see that repealed, of course. You know, I think I think it should be people should have to um, to have some sort of training and and a permit to have to have a firearm, but. If we can't get that done, if lawmakers are unwilling to repeal the permitless carry law, then perhaps we could repeal the law that says that municipalities and cities can't make their own laws around that. Mayors of our cities who know their cities, know their towns, know their communities in ways that the lawmakers from all over the state don't should be able to put into place uh, policies that will keep citizens safe. But what would that do? I mean, uh, guns from Mississippi are heading up north to Chicago and St. Louis, and many of them are involved in criminal activity and homicides in those cities. There are gun shows here where you can buy weapons and not go through any kind of background check. So why, from city to city, you can drive to another city and get a gun? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely, you can. And, and yes, the lots of the guns that show up in, in Chicago and St. Louis that are involved in violent crimes come right here from Mississippi. Um, and it is because we have the weakest gun laws. Um, and I, I agree. And there is no one thing that we're going to do that is going to solve gun violence in America. There's no one thing we're going to do that's going to solve gun violence in Mississippi. Our our rate of gun violence death uh, is more than double the national average. In your work, have you been able to identify some of the causes for this? You know, there are a lot of causes of of gun violence that don't get talked about. And one of the things that we hear, especially after the events that we've had in the last couple of weeks in America, is that we have to do more about mental health. And and that's true. However, so does every other country in the world. You know, the 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 difference is the guns. The difference is the availability of guns. Um, one of the things that we find so important that is that is so important to Moms Demand Action is is that we elevate the voices of the people and communities that are disproportionately affected. And we know there are lots of reasons that people can be, communities can be disproportionately affected. 
Poverty is certainly um, a cause of, of gun violence. It um, being being disenfranchised, lack of opportunity, viewing the world in a way that that the only power that a person may have comes through a gun. Are there um, any and, efforts to bring different segments of the community together, i.e. district attorneys, judges, um, corrections, law enforcement, social services, mental health. I'm not a criminologist, I, I but I have talked right. to a criminologist uh, recently, and he talked about getting everybody together on the same page to begin to uh, devise strategies that they can work together to combat some of this. There's been an incredible amount of research done over over the last 20 or 30 years um, in America about gun violence, the causes of gun violence, and how we can how we can directly address it. Um, and those that research has resulted in some in some real practical things um, that we know work. There is a there's the Cure Violence Initiative, and what that is is it it, it treats violence, it treats gun violence um, as a public health issue. And we have a group um, in Jackson um, called Operation Good who are, is doing they, – they are working from the, the cure violence model, and they are doing remarkable work. Um, they have um, identified the areas in Jackson that are the, the biggest hotspots, right, the biggest hotspots for, for gun violence. And they um, go in and, and, and develop relationships. What they're doing works. Since the beginning of 2022, there have been no gun deaths in the zone that they have identified. It is remarkable. And to empower people in communities that are disproportionately affected to do the things that we know work, that is the way that we're going to make the most headway in Jackson the quickest. I believe that. Everybody needs to know about this. Everybody needs to know that there are ways that we can really make a huge difference very quickly. And then we need people to buy in and support it. Mary Helen Abel is a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. She adds that this weekend is Gun Violence Awareness Weekend and encourages Mississippians to wear orange in observance of that. Coming up, how the Gulf Coast can protect itself against sea level rise. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As the climate warms, sea levels keep rising. That's a huge concern for the Mississippi Gulf Coast, where floods are already too common, especially during hurricane season. Renee Collini, who's with the Mississippi State Extension Service, leads a project to bolster flood resilience along the coast. She tells us sea level rise is a global problem. As temperatures get warmer, you know, the, the water itself 
um, takes up more space. It's a thing called thermal expansion. And then at the same time, we have more land ice that's melting and coming into the oceans. And, you know, that's, that all sounds really big and global, but at a local level, we have tide gauges that have been in place since the 60s. And even looking at those, we can see locally that sea levels have been going up. And so when we talk about sea level, you know, every day there's tides and we've got waves that happen and Sometimes there's storm surge and there's a big storm in the Gulf and all those things happen around a common starting point of like mean sea level. And that mean sea level where waves occur and where tides occur, that itself is higher. Why is that important? Why is it a concern? Because as seas come up, it changes a lot of the, the way that flooding will happen and where it will be. But also as that change happens with our flood risk, we've built our communities to be somewhat resilient to flooding already. We, we're, we live on the coast. We're familiar with storms and we're familiar with rainfall. But our infrastructure isn't ready for these changes in flood risk. So, for example, we use gravity stormwater systems where rain falls and it drains and then it, it you know, drains all the way down using gravity into the Gulf of Mexico. But as that comes up higher, as the Gulf itself is higher, that's less space, that's less potential for the rainfall to drain away. So it slows down our, our rainfall, draining away from our streets and our homes and our businesses. Another change is storm surge, right? So if sea levels are higher and we have a really low flat slope on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, <laughs> just even a little bit higher translates to quite a bit farther inland. And so we have homes that we think are built to withstand storm surge or built away from storm surge, but there's actually going to be deeper and reach farther inland as these rise. People who live inland might say, well, it doesn't affect me. Why should I care? Why should they care? They, they should care because, for one, like I said, it, uh, all of it's connected. All the water falls somewhere and has to end up in the Gulf of Mexico. And if it's not getting there as quickly, it's going to stay in your backyard or on your street. Um, but even for folks who are really far inland, say in Jackson, you know, the Mississippi Gulf Coast is a productive place for the state. We've got lots of ports here, lots of commerce and industry that generates revenues. And so those processes being interrupted could be really impactful to our state's, you know, our state's budget, to our state's infrastructure, to our state's flow of commerce. Um, and from a bigger picture, if you want to look at like the whole U.S., our coast contribute a little over a quarter of our GDP. And so <laughs> if if a quarter of our GDP is being interrupted by impacts from sea level rise, that could be a problem. But also a lot of our resources still primarily come into this country through our ports right there at our coast. So yeah. if our coasts are not resilient, then that could really impact the flow of supplies and goods coming into our country. So there is the Resilience to Future Flooding Project. What is it? Yeah, so that project is one we're very uh, proud of, very excited about. The, the Resilience to Future Flooding Project reached out to communities to help them to overcome barriers to being resilient to future flooding. And oftentimes these barriers are about communication, right? Understanding the science, understanding what actions even can be taken to be more resilient. So we developed videos to both explain the science, but also short videos of case studies. What have other communities been doing to increase their resilience to flooding? Um, so that was one part of it. Another part of it was helping overcome financial barriers. So we provided small grants to communities across the northern Gulf so that they were able to take on some of these projects that they saw or pursue new ones to increase their own resilience. Ultimately, 
do we have the ability to stop this? Or is it going to happen so, anyway? <laughs> so seas will continue rising um, into the future, but how much they will rise in the long term, we can influence that. Understanding those relationships and how it relates to things like climate change and carbon emissions, there's a lot of work that's happening. A report just came out last week, actually, from an interagency task force that kind of talks about those relationships. So, yes, there's a certain amount of sea level rise that is going to happen, and we need to be ready for that and adapt our communities to that. Um, but how much seas will rise, we still have control over that. Renee, is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important about this issue to point out? It can be easy sometimes when we're talking about rising seas and and changing flood risk. There's so many things involved um, with this question that it can either feel overwhelming or maybe it's not worth doing anything or maybe it won't be that bad. But there's this middle ground where we can get a lot of good work done and reduce a lot of impacts and the more that people talk about this and the more that people learn and the more that people get involved, the, the safer our economies and our cultures and our communities will be. Renee Collini with the Mississippi State University Extension. We appreciate your time in speaking with us. Thank you so much, Desiree. Still ahead, another hot and humid Mississippi summer is paradise for household mold. We'll talk about that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Summer is here. That means some Mississippians might start to notice changes inside their homes. Not all of them welcome. Catherine Lee is the program coordinator for Mississippi at the Green and Healthy Home Initiative. She speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane. Residents in the state of Mississippi, whether they are you know homeowners or renters, will likely start to see a higher prevalence of visible mold or could also perhaps moldy or musky odor in their homes. And that is because of the change in temperature as well as, um, you know, change in humidity. Um, So there are, those are the contributing factors to mold growth in our indoor environments that mold spores are, are exposed to excessive moisture and heat. So they are, you know, more likely to grow and and find places to grow in our homes. And so if you're a tenant in Mississippi and you start noticing mold or smelling mold, do you have any legal recourse? So there is a lot of variation in terms of legal recourse based on where renters live, whether it be, you know, in different parts of the state and also what kind of housing they live in whether it is subsidized by a public program or if it's privately owned and, um, and leased. So, you know, there are some forms of legal recourse, but it's very dependent on the lease agreement, basically. And also if there is a, um, 
a locally adopted property maintenance code and a code enforcement office available to renters. I know that some people advise renters to try to work with a landlord and try to sort of solve a a matter privately before potentially taking it to a court if they do have some kind of legal recourse. How do you recommend renters handle a situation where they're living in a rented house or apartment and they notice mold? Right. So there are a few things just to keep in mind with mold. And um, the the main thing that I talk to renters about when this first comes up is, is to try to find out the severity of the issue. Um, because actually, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, there are, you know, kind of standards of what is considered a, a minimal mold, presence of mold in a home. So, and that would be less than 10 square feet. So if you think about a, like, three by three foot patch of a, you know, area on a wall or, say, in a bathroom on, on a surface, you know, think about in your in your shower where you may see mold build up over time. If it's something along those lines you know, the best course of action is for a, a renter to try to, to clean that themselves with detergent and water and make sure that it, your um, that uh, room is drying out completely and that it's well ventilated. So if it's something that happens commonly, you know, again, a, a typical issue in mold is near, um, you know, door frames, windows, and in showers, you know, making sure that that's getting cleaned regularly and the room is well ventilated and that people are running their um, their fans and their vent systems after they're using a shower or, you know, um, there's a lot of moisture in the kitchen environment, you know, that's getting vented. You know, those are the common things to make sure that that um, happens first if it's a small problem. But if renters are recognizing a reoccurring issue with mold and dampness in their home, um, or the problem is more significant and, you know, larger than 10 square feet, or they think that it's attached um, to an issue with their HVAC system, you know, those are the um, the issues where that um, should be reported to the property owner, and um, they should look at their lease, um, if they have a lease, to make sure that they're following the process to do requests for repairs for renters who do not have lease agreements, what often kicks in is the process that is outlined by the State Landlord-Tenant Act, and there is a way to go through step-by-step requesting a repair. If that request isn't responded to, then what to do next. And can you walk through maybe, I mean, to the the best of your knowledge, sort of some of the potential negative health outcomes if you allow in-house fungus to sort of fester? Absolutely. So um, the health impact of mold exposure is really, um, I think, especially important for people to know who may be allergic to mold and have asthma that is exacerbated um, by exposure to mold. You know, those are the those are the um, um, homes that we work with on kind of asthma control education um, in the work that we do with the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative to make sure that people, if they are particularly sensitive to mold and those musky smells, that, um, you know, we can help people find ways to get the um, get mold remediation um, completed where they're living or find a safer, you know, environment for them to be in, in in extreme cases. But the average person, if they are, you know, continue to be exposed to mold over time at unsafe levels, you know, that can um, create, you know, environments where people could develop respiratory infections and also, you know, develop or have exacerbated um, respiratory illness and chronic conditions 
you know, including asthma and COPD. So those are, I think, some of the key things to keep in mind. And, you know, that could start out with some symptoms would be, you know, shortness of breath, coughing, wheezing, things along those lines. and could lead to more serious issues, including, you know, frequency of um, bronchitis, uh, eczema, you know, uh, as well as, you know, asthma attacks and that would mean, you know, uh, treatment and, and um, breathing treatments and things along those lines. Catherine Lee is the program coordinator for Mississippi at the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.